Welcome, everyone, to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz, pleased to be joined by Dr. Brian Hainline, the NCAA Chief Medical Officer, and Dr. Thomas McAllister. He is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Uh, we're going to talk about concussions here during this session of our social series. Um, there was the NCAA DOD, that's the Department of Defense, Grand Alliance Concussion Conference. It was the fifth time this was held. And Dr. Hainline, I will start with you. And then Dr. McAllister, if you can piggyback off of, what were the major takeaways at this latest conference? Well, thanks, Andy, and, 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 and thanks, Tom, for joining as well. So this is the fifth time we've come together with the Department of Defense, and the primary purpose of this annual conference is just to give updates on what's sort of emerging evidence from the NCA Department of Defense Care Consortium. So I'll just give a real very broad overview and, and, and then uh, ask Tom to become a, a bit more granular. But, you know, we were providing updates on, on everything from um, the expected time of recovery from concussion, now that has shifted dramatically just over the past several years compared to what we were doing even a couple of uh, decades ago on emerging biomarkers. So things like brain MRI studies, we're taking blood tests and, 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 and having those blood tests possibly be predictive about the prognosis uh, for concussion. Or, or really looking at, at very particular things such as what happens on the football field in the preseason and what you can do about policy changes regarding that. So it really was just looking at the new emerging evidence and having an opportunity to present that, um, especially to the NCAA membership. So there were, I think, close to 800 physicians and athletic trainers who were in attendance. It was a, a virtual conference and, and I think it was the best one we've done yet. Brian, I... Um... Can't, can't disagree with anything you said. I think um, having been in from the, the beginning with this project with you, it's uh, just, I think one of the biggest take-home messages for me was uh, this is our fifth uh, conference and it's really uh, at a point now where a lot of the hard work over the last seven or eight years has begun to pay off with some of the results that we're beginning to see. You know, you start out with these projects with uh, this this grandiose vision of what you want to what you want to learn from the study and so forth and then you get um, down into the weeds of trying to make it happen and all the different challenges that you encounter but I think as a as a group um, the study has progressed to a point where we're beginning to see some of the some of the fruits of our labors and and some of the some of the payoff for all the student athletes who have volunteered uh, their time and their effort to be part of the study we're enormously appreciative of it all right, so Dr. McAllister, you teased it. What'd you learn? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I think uh, there, you can sort of put some of the things in bins. Um, you know, for one thing, we've been trying to learn a little bit about the uh, what causes a concussion. I know that sounds uh, obvious. It's a blow to the head of some sort, but actually... Um, we all had this somewhat naive idea that um, if you just hit somebody hard enough, um, they would end up with a concussion. And it turns out that while, yes, that's probably true in the extreme, there's enormous variation in um, how much force it takes to uh, produce what we call a concussion. And there are a couple of different pathways. And this has been emerging from the study related to some of the sensors that were put in uh, particularly football helmets. And we were able to measure uh, how uh, strong an impact from what direction and how often 
um, these blows are associated with with the concussion. And the bottom line is that there are a couple of different pathways. Yes, you can get a concussion uh, from a single large blow to the head, uh, but uh, it also appears from some of the emerging data that um, you could get a somewhat um, moderate blow, I wouldn't describe it as a light blow, or a, uh, but uh, one that is not generally as high as, as we used to think caused a concussion um, and still end up with the same result clinically if you've had a lot of um, blows to the head in the um, preceding days or weeks. So in other words, this notion that um, you're almost priming the brain, if you will, uh, to become more sensitive to blows as you go along, but it's even more complicated. I won't get into the, the big weeds, but uh, it, the, the other idea is that different heads, different brains seem to have different sensitivities to developing a concussion. So this idea that there are th um, individualized thresholds for um, what kind of blow it takes to give you, uh, Andy, a concussion or me a concussion. And this is actually not all that surprising if you think back to the days of um, boxing, where a lot of the times that was the first sport that was uh, you know, recognized to have some issues with repetitive head impacts. And people used to talk about this guy has a glass jaw or this guy goes down more easily than the other guys. This idea that um, yeah, that, that uh, we all bring to our uh, activities a different threshold for uh, injury. And it's not unique to the brain, that's true of other parts of the body as well, but I think we, we now have some of the evidence uh, emerging in, in this regard. So that's, that's one, Ben. Well, you know, one thing that I, I love about this study is there's no way that this could happen with these two groups, football and military academies or the military in general, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but here in the 2020s, the mid-2020s, um, we've got these two groups that for decades had this perception, this mythology of, oh, the tough guy, you know, you get knocked in the head, you're out in the field as a soldier, shake it off, keep going. Both fields basically were willing to reevaluate what is going on with head injuries. If you could both speak to the fact that you know, these two entities that finally came around to saying, you know what, we really need to look at this for the long term, for the greater good of our product, of the health of our player, of our soldier, uh, to make sure we're doing the right things. And Dr. McAllister, if you can speak to this first, and then uh, um, uh, Dr. Hainline. Uh, you're probably going to be sorry that you asked me to address this, man. This is a, a subject uh, close to my heart. I mean, I think in some ways, the association that comes to mind is that it was only Nixon who could open up China. I mean, you needed people who uh, really uh, were above uh, reproach, if you will, for being um, weak or being susceptible to this or that. So I think you're right that uh, our military personnel and how they um, came to the fore um, in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan um, and how that highlighted the special problems related to brain injury, particularly uh, the milder side, milder quote unquote, uh, side of injury. And then uh, football players, uh, the stereotype being what you described. Um, but then you add in this uh, notion that because these two um, parties did come together, we are learning about brain injury in general. So it's not just in football players, it's not just in um, uh, military personnel, but, you know, almost, well, let's say 40% ish or so of our, um, uh, participants are women. 
Uh, we have representatives from all sports. So this idea that we're being able to expand our knowledge about concussion to way beyond um, male football players or male military personnel, I think is one of the most exciting things um, uh, uh, for us as investigators. Brian? Yeah, and to that latter point, and then I'll get in a, a little bit to the history. But prior to this study, about 95% of the world literature, uh, the concussion literature was about men or males. And, and so we have just completely opened up our understanding to female concussions. And, um, and most of the literature prior to this study was in uh, ice hockey and, and American football. And, and we're studying all 24 sports and all of the activities of our cadets. So, so that's really key. You know, I think it's really interesting, Andy, uh, before this study was done, there, there was all this new emerging information about concussion, and there was a great deal of fear um, be, because there were these case reports coming out for the first time in, in the early 2000s that, you know, a concussion can lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, and so that certainly would shook everyone up. Um, and then we really started looking at the literature, and it's very interesting because in you know, the early 1900s, a concussion was really equivalent to what we would call today a severe traumatic brain injury. It was a brain hemorrhage or a skull fracture or, or, or bruising of the brain. And, and that definition, you know, kept up even going into the 1950s and so and 60s. And then, you know, you have this other new sort of way of looking at concussion where it was just considered sort of a, you know, a ding to the head or, or, or something like that, something that was uh, not considered that serious. I mean, that's how the medical literature was treating it. And so we really realized that when, when this study started and you know, we started talking seriously about it in 2013 that we have to come up with a, a better definition of concussion. We don't have any objective way of defining concussion. We don't know the natural history of concussion. And we only know a little bit about concussion and, and essentially two sports. And so, uh, and, and the Department of Defense, uh, you know, Tom, Tom referenced this, but, you know, there were over 300, 350,000 traumatic brain injuries, most of which were mild traumatic brain injuries or concussion, most of which happened in a way that was biomechanically similar to a sport concussion. So they weren't blast injuries, but but they were seeing that, that so many of their, their, their military personnel were having long-term uh, consequences of concussion. So they were really desperate to find some more information. And, and on the NCAA side, you know, we've always been at, at, at the cutting, age of, cutting edge of, of really trying to improve safety for, for our athletes. And this was another way to address it. And I think the stars just aligned perfectly. And, and um, I'll always remember in December, 2013, we had sort of a think tank, 10 scientists from the DOD, 10 from the NCAA. We did what's called a gap analysis, which is, you know, what do we know? What do we really not know? And at the end of that meeting, we came to the conclusion that we should really do a large longitudinal perspective, long-term study. And uh, nine months later, <laughs> really, we, we had that study that was, was already started and it was, it was jointly funded by the Department of Defense and NCAA. So it was Really, it happened in a remarkably fast period of time when you think about, relatively speaking, how long it takes to put a study together and get funding. And, and again, I think the stars were just aligned, I, I mean, almost perfectly between the Department of Defense and the NCAA and, and where society was. Dr. McAllister, you know, one term that is used quite often 
by us broadcasters and those, uh, whether it's college, professional, is that player X is in concussion protocol. Um, let's educate some people. What does that mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I'm glad you brought it up. It's basically uh, over the last uh, 20 years or so, uh, the care of somebody identified with a concussion has changed uh, remarkably. Um, and going from a, okay, um, you know, do you know what day it is? Um, how many fingers am I holding up? Okay, you're good to go get back in the game. Uh, to um, a very careful assessment of neurological function, cognitive function, balance, um, and uh, symptom rating scales um, that are monitored closely. So this is the protocol. You monitor it often daily um, until the athlete or the uh, service personnel uh, individual reaches a point where they're um, asymptomatic or without symptoms. Now, that's a bit of a misnomer. It's really when they have returned to the level of you know, uh, symptoms that they had prior to the event or prior to the injury. But at that point, um, they are judged to be ready to begin to start um, a graded exercise protocol, meaning that they can begin to do some aerobic activity, gradually ramping that up to a point where they're able to do, um, uh, you know, pretty much full bore exercise without developing symptoms. So at other times, somebody will start that protocol and then their headache will come back or their uh, sense of disequilibrium or balance problems will come back. So what we're talking about is you have to get to a point where you can tolerate um, uh, full exertion and sport-specific activity or duty-specific activity. Um, and at that point, you can be cleared for um, um, return to play or return to duty or full activity. And Altogether, that takes usually about a week on the clearing up of symptoms, and then it takes typically a week or so for the graded exercise protocol um, to um, progress through those steps. And uh, so eventually, you now people are out for almost two weeks for the most part. There's lots of variation on, on either side, and that's a dramatic difference than the way it was uh, 20 years ago when it could be 15 minutes or so. But what are the, what are the chances, uh, Brian, that you could be physically ready, but there could be another aspect of your life, especially as a student athlete, where you're not ready? For example, let's say you can handle the balance issue uh, and the aerobic activity, but you know what? Reading still is a problem for you, uh, or focus in the classroom. What are the chances you could be cleared athletically, but you're not a hundred percent academically? Yeah, great question. So one of the, the, the nice things about learning from this protocol, and actually we've incorporated it into the, uh, you, you know, with working with the NCAA membership, our, our concussion protocol safety checklist, we actually really believe that academic clearance and sport clearance should really go side by side. And, and, and what, what we've discovered is that there are these different sort of clinical domains or clinical presentations with, with concussion. And it's an inexact science, but, it, but it's a nice clinical way of sort of helping to guide rehabilitation. So for example, some people may have what we call vestibular symptoms, meaning they become you know, very easily dizzy when they do certain activities. Other people have what we call ocular motor or ophthalmologic symptoms. So they, they can't become cross-eyed when they, when they read. 
And so that's a perfect example. If, if that's still existing, anytime something comes close to your face, you can get a headache or, or you can get dizzy because your eyes aren't working properly. Other people can develop sleep problems or mental health symptoms such as anxiety or depression. And, and so all of these things can actually manifest as what we call persistent symptoms. And in the ideal world, you're returning to academics and sport um, together. We actually, uh, in our protocols, we say academics comes first and, and then comes sport. But to your point, Andy, if someone has those kinds of symptoms, it's not just saying, well, you need to, more, to rest more or recover more. What we're really saying now is we need to actively define why someone is manifesting that way and then target those symptoms in, in a very particular rehabilitation protocol. So it may be a, a protocol where you're working on eye movements or where you're working on vestibular dysfunction or where you're addressing anxiety or, or depression. And the other thing we've learned is that you can continue to exercise in, a, in an aerobic manner. So, you know, like on a treadmill, long distance, something like that, we call it sub threshold aerobic exercise. So you exercise just to the point that you're possibly starting to get symptoms. So if you combine targeted therapy with the sub-threshold aerobic exercise, that now is, is, is the current uh, state of the art in science of, of how to really help someone maximally, maximally rehabilitate to their full potential. Do you want to chime in here, Dr. McAllister? Well, I think that uh, that's exactly right. And it's a complex uh, interaction. So somebody can pass the cognitive portion, for example, of the um, um, concussion protocol, but that's a very different uh, context than going into a large uh, classroom with a lot of people and showing slides and doing some self-directed learning and lots of distraction in the room. So um, it's almost uh, it, it's analogous to why we put people through more vigorous exercise over time, because you can tolerate a little bit of that. But sometimes in the recovery phase, you can't tolerate as much. And it's the same cognitively. You put yourself in a multiple stimulus environment with lots of noise, lots of distraction, and people may develop um, uh, symptoms in that context. It doesn't mean that you're making it worse for them, but it does mean that their brain may not be fully uh, ready to um, engage at the same level that they could uh, before. And I think if I could just pick up with, uh, on something Brian said, I think the what we've learned um, from the study, um, pulling it back here, is that the variation in recovery what we call typical recovery uh, is enormous. So the, the, the lore based in part on earlier studies was that, well, you ought to have symptoms and they ought to be pretty much gone after a concussion within a week. And then uh, maybe you do your graded exercise protocol and uh, you can return to activity or return to play in another you know, six days or so is the typical thing. That's true if you just look at the, the mean, the average amount of time. But if you ask the question differently and say, okay, great, but you know, like any other kind of medical illness, there's a wide range of how long it takes people to recover. Um, and so if, we, if you frame the question differently, it's, well, so wait, what are the numbers for recovery, the length of recovery for 80% of people have a concussion? In our care study, uh, it really extends uh, uh, out there to um, about uh, at least two weeks for symptom recovery and essentially a full month uh, for um, being able to return to play, meaning that that's 
okay. That's the typical recovery. You're within that range. And the problem has been that if people, you know, woke up on day eight and they still had symptoms, they were so, oh, you have a complex recovery. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be one of those people that have symptoms forever and this and that. They had a very, people had a very binary view of um, recovery. You either got all better right away or you had, oh dear, you know, post-concussive syndrome or something of this sort. And I think if we free ourselves up to give people a broader um, range uh, of recovery and don't get them all um, anxious and uh, concerned that, oh dear God, I'm not going to get better, um, then you know, that has important implications and ramifications for um, um, you know, how they see themselves, how the trainers relate to them, how the coaches relate to them and so forth. Brian, I'm gonna get on my soapbox for a minute because it, it drives me crazy when, when uh, the uh, people making noise out there have no real concept of the work like this that goes on. Um, between the membership, outside entities, real studies that, uh, you know, would, would just go away if people went off and did their own thing. Um, funding, where is funding for something like this? And then overall, the importance of the membership working together, different levels of the membership on an important study like this, that will ultimately help all student athletes, regardless of what level you play. Well, Andy, you can stay on your soapbox as long as you want to talk about this because it, <laughs> it, it, it really is re re remarkable. So, so first off, the funding started as a $30 million study. The, the NCAA uh, Board of Governors, um, they, they agreed to match what was called a BAA grant um, that, that Tom and, 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 and two other principal investigators, uh, Steve Brolio and, and, and Mike McRae at the time, uh, they put in funding for the grant. They got approval for $15 million from the Department of Defense. So it started off as a $30 million study. And over time, there have been new levels of funding requests and approval. And we're now uh, close to about $105 million. 30 NCAA schools, including the four service academies, uh, four principal investigators now, and, and Tom, you would know this better than I, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of boots on the ground individuals across those 30 schools that are uh, that have been doing the research uh, on site uh, you, you know it's by far and away the largest and and most comprehensive um, concussion study ever done in history and and it's not just that we're collaborating with the 30 schools we're also collaborating with 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 different studies with this study called track TBI which is a brain imaging study and we're sharing protocols and now we're 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 working with the Department of Defense the data are going into a, a federal interagency traumatic brain injury research data bank so that other researchers can actually obtain information from this study and they can do their own independent assessment so so the degree of cross collaboration it's it's just I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. And, and I think it's fair to say, Tom, that this study has surpassed everyone's expectations and, and, we're, um, and, we're, and we're just really so proud to be part of it. Before you answer that, I'm just curious, of that 30, how many of those 30 are uh, in the so-called Power Five? So let me see. So there are five Division Three schools, five Division Two schools, and then I would say uh, Tom, I'm not looking at the chart right now, but probably eight 
power five schools and then and then other D1 schools. Um, so that's roughly it. So it, it, we, we tried to really, um, I, I remember after the first year, we just started off with five schools. I sent out a letter to all of the NCAA presidents, D1, D2, and D3, and received about 300 responses of, of presidents who said their school was interested in being part of this. And, and so it went through really a rigorous process to, to get all the schools involved. So you answered my question. It is not just a power five study. They didn't do it on their own. They needed collaboration from all divisions and the service academies, which are not in the power five. Thanks for uh, helping me on my soapbox there. Uh, Dr. <laughs> McAllister, if you want to just put a bow on that and then we got one other thing and then we'll, we'll move on and we appreciate your time. Uh, yeah, I think we're, um, you know, we're just, uh, just delighted at how it has turned out. I think we had set targets for the number of people with concussion that we expect to study and the number of people to be enrolled and so forth. And we blew by that, uh, early on, um, in, in the study. So at this point in time, there's north of 55,000, uh, student athletes who have enrolled in the study and, um, more than 5,000 um, individuals who sustained a diagnosed concussion during the study uh, that we have collected um, data on. And then I think uh, th what that did was position us to um, move into the second phase of the study, which is to say, okay, so we, the emphasis has been on the acute injury, what happens in the first days, weeks, and up to six months after injury. Um, and then we moved into what we call CARE 2.0, which took a look at, well, what happens cumulatively uh, over the course of about four years while people, so we added another time point and then went beyond that and began to um, assess people after they had graduated from service academies or from civilian universities and um, uh, have them report on various aspects of their brain health and, and overall health and, and uh, life status. So, um, and now we're uh, embarking on the third phase, which is to bring people in um, up to 10 years or so after graduation to begin to explore this question about um, are there long-term effects of concussion and or repetitive head impact exposure? And if so, what do they look like? Who gets them? Uh, what could we do to uh, mitigate them uh, and so forth? All right, so last word to you, Dr. Hainline. Um, we obviously have seen changes in equipment uh, over the last couple of years, certainly in the football helmet, but not just in football. I know in soccer, you know, sometimes, at least at the youth level, they'll sometimes wear that, that um, the headband, you know, for headers and things of that nature. Um, how soon before we're going to see something tangible for the, the college student athlete that would be an offshoot from this study, uh, whether it's behavioral, uh, practice, um, you know, I know we've seen different things with targeting, but things that still certainly could come off of this study uh, that we'll see on the ground. Well, I think we've seen it already, Andy. So, um, and let's just take what Tom was talking about, the normative data that it takes up to a month to recover. That actually, that behavioral pattern started shifting and we really believe that this study was a huge influence on that plus a corollary study from uh, working with the Department of Defense on, on how to change the, the, the culture of concussion safety. And so just the idea now that everyone was starting to report concussion and one of the outcomes of this study is that if you report and start obtaining management for concussion immediately, 
compared to not reporting or not receiving management for a few days, you actually will recover fully from concussion much sooner. So that's a game changer right there. I mean, you're looking at your buddy who might be hiding a concussion saying, hey, you know, you're just not hurting yourself. You're hurting the whole team. You're going to be out longer. The other thing is, you know, we looked in a granular way at football practice and, and found uh, uh, some real discrepancies in the preseason versus the regular season. There was a big paper study that was published this spring. And as a result of that, really in record time at the division one level, uh, they changed the entire way the preseason is structured. And it was directly correlated to this study and the membership banned certain drills that, that were, were thought to be probably, you know, not necessary and, and could increase the likelihood of concussion and, and, and unnecessary head impact. And then I think one of the most important things, and Tom kind of referenced this about individual susceptibility, we saw, in a, again, in a football study, you could have the same position, say, offensive tight end, and two people that are playing the same position may have a very, very different profile in terms of concussion and head impact. So that brings it back to the school level that it's not just general education and, and equipment and, and so forth, but it's how you use your body and whether you're being trained properly in terms of how you engage with someone else. So, so it even gets down to the very individual level of, of biomechanics and, and, and recovery and, 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 and what you're doing at that level. So, so already we've seen remarkable changes and, and I think we're, you know, that that's going to continue uh, really. I think We'll, we'll get better with that and, and, and it's not ready for prime time, but we'll also have uh, different sort of diagnostic uh, markers that are available uh, at, at, at right at the sideline that will enhance, not replace, uh, some of the other sorts of markers that we have, um, you know, in terms of balance assessment, cognition, and so forth. So, yeah, it's been great already and, and um, more changes to come. And I will say this, as someone who is uh, on air, uh, I think more broadcasters, regardless of what a coach or an athletic trainer say, should not put a timetable on a return to play. If someone is out with concussion protocols, I know I just say they're out with concussion protocols, TBD on when they determine when they're coming back. Because if you put that date out there, we're likely going to be disappointed and suddenly think something else is wrong because they didn't return by game X because you thought they'd be only out a week or two weeks. And as you said, Dr. McAllister, there is no two concussions that are alike and no two returns that certainly could be the exact time. So that's another thing I think we need to do a better job of in the public space in broadcasting of not give a return to play an exact date when they're in concussion protocols. I uh, appreciate both your time. Dr. Brian Hainline, NCAA Chief Medical Officer, as always, a regular guest here on our social series. And Dr. Thomas McAllister, he's the chair of the department of psychiatry at Indiana University School of Medicine. As always, you can go to ncaa.org slash social series where you can find all our social series, all 100 plus of them archived right there on the site. Thanks for watching, everyone.